What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Me Too is a movement of women coming together and saying that we're not going to stand for being treated a certain way anymore. And that has permeated through so many different fields. So I don't think it's fair to just say that it exists in, you know, the entertainment business. I've never known what I want to be. I still don't know what I want to be. And I don't think I ever want to find out what I want to be because that's just not how I roll. The way I have always conducted my career choices has been recognizing an opportunity, creating an opportunity, and then running with it. I'm very conflicted by pageants in general because I do think that women shouldn't be judged basis how they look. I, I don't think so. I think that happens to cattle and women. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the now award-winning podcast, How I Found My Voice. I'm Samira Ahmed and I go behind the celebrity persona to find out what influences shaped their success. How did politicians, artists and performers grow up to become such great and unique communicators? My guest today thought she was going to be an aeronautical engineer, but in 2000, after winning the Miss World beauty pageant at 17, Priyanka Chopra Jonas became a household name in India, starring in Bollywood blockbusters such as Don and Burfi. She made history as the first Indian-born actor to lead an American network TV series in Quantico and has starred in over 60 films. Her latest film, The White Tiger, which she both stars in and produced, is an adaptation of the Man Booker Prize-winning novel and recently became the number one film on Netflix worldwide. She's been featured as one of Forbes' most powerful women and in Time magazine as one of the most influential people in the world. And her memoir, Unfinished, is out now. Priyanka Chopra Jonas, welcome to How I Found My Voice. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Smear. I'm so happy to be here. I'm going to get you to take me back to your childhood in northern India. So both of your parents were captains and doctors in the Indian military. What was Mini Priyanka like growing up in that setting? I was always very curious, loved playing, chatterbox, always talkative. 
my dad used to call me Mittu sometimes because Mittu is a colloquial term for like a parrot. I would repeat everything people would do. I loved people at that time. I loved attention at that time, especially my parents' attention or anyone who will give it to me, honestly. Should have known I would be an actor. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? And I know that you had a strong sense of your voice from a young age because you were an only child for quite a significant number of those years. And even like the house and the signage outside the house made a statement that you you wanted to be part of, didn't it? Well, I think um, it wasn't just me that I had a sense of self. I think my parents had a major sense of self and individuality. I think that they inculcated that in me, but also encouraged that in me. They used to ask me questions. I was always treated like an adult. I was never talked down to. I was never shamed for my ideas or thoughts it was encouraged to always have an opinion and say it in my home. So that plus being the only child for about seven years made me very audacious and made me like my own person. So I remember we used to live in military barracks, or not barracks, but homes, which were military homes. And there used to always be someone downstairs, someone upstairs, someone downstairs, someone upstairs. And that was like a block um, of, you know, military personnel Everyone had a nameplate outside their homes to show, you know, who was living there. And because both my parents were in the military, we had both their names. So Major Ashok Chopra, his designation, which was MD, MBBS, whatever, doctor designations. And my mom, Captain Madhu Chopra, and her designation. And so I remember when my dad was putting it up, I asked him, I said, don't I live in this house too? Why isn't my name up there? And instead of laughing at me, and not taking me seriously, my dad said, you're right, this must be amended. And it was amended. And he asked me, what would it say, your name and your designation? So I said, Priyanka Mimi Chopra, KGB, Kindergarten B. <laughs> well, your dad, I mean, you, you, you speak with great affection for both your parents, but there was a particularly good relationship with your father that was important to you, wasn't there? Well, my father was more like my champion. He was my cheerleader. He was very excited about everything I did and really felt the need to just, he was just very excited about everything I did. And I had a really, really dear relationship with my dad. We were like twins, you know, he was just always on my team. That's, that's a lovely thing to say. Having said that, your parents decided to send you to boarding school when you were seven. And it was the Martinier Girls School in Lucknow, hoping it would instill some discipline in you. And Indian boarding schools, I know from my extended family, have gone to them, are very big on old-fashioned discipline. It must have been a bit of a shock. What impact did it have on you? How did it shape you? I remember a feeling of abandonment. I remember feeling like, what did I do wrong? You know, what was I at fault and what, what, what could I have done so that this was not the case? I remember feeling... Not fear. I don't think I was afraid because I've, I'm not someone who was scared of new environments, but I was afraid of what discipline meant because I had no idea what discipline meant, you know. You have to finish your plate. You have to make your bed. You have to, you know, ha like the things, the have-tos, I didn't have in my house. My parents didn't have rules like that. So that, I think, was a really big shock for me. It really shaped me into being extremely independent. And I remember when I came back in sixth grade to Bareilly, where my parents were, 
I used to look down at my other classmates. I was like, I've already lived alone. Like, you know, I've come from boarding school. Like, I'm better than you. <laughs> Your parents still drop you <laughs> to school. It was so funny. Um, it really gave me an independent streak. And did you get to start performing there? Yeah, actually, I did. More than stage and stuff, I did a lot of music. These Are My Favorite Things was one of the first songs I learned. From, from The Sound of Music? Yeah. These are a few of my favorite things. Loved it. Um, all of the sound of music was taught to us at that time. And this is what, um, third, fourth, fifth grade. They did a lot of extracurriculars like debates, elocutions. I was always pushed to take part in them because I was chatty anyway. <laughs> By contrast, you later went to three years of high school in the US where you stayed with other members of your extended family. And this included a period in the Midwestern states of Iowa for high school. I, I wonder how that affected you. It must have been a huge cultural change. It definitely was a cultural change, but I don't think my outlook to life from when I was a very young kid has been a fear when I see something new or when I've changed environments because as a daughter of two military parents, we moved every two years. So it was very normal for me to go to a new place. And I've always leaned into it with a sense of curiosity and a sense of adventure rather than fear. And I think that's what I did. I wanted to soak up as much as I could. I wanted to learn what America was like. I wanted to know. And I was so excited about the fact that girls in American high schools at that time, which was what I must have been 12, 13, where they shaved their legs and they tweezed their eyebrows and they wore makeup and they wore shorts. And I was too caught up in all of that to be worried about, you know, the fact that I was suddenly in the Midwest of America. I was trying to figure out all of these foods that I didn't understand. I was, it was just all of the teenage things that I was trying to figure out. I remember being extremely awestruck by the amount of space America had compared to where I came from. You know, India has 1.3 billion people now within the country and it's, you know, highly populated. So, so I remember that being a huge culture shock for me. You have obviously have a lot of affection for your time there. And I know you spent some time in New York where the diversity was really particularly exciting. But you did have one experience at one school in the States where the, the bullying was clearly racist. And I, I just wonder how you found that. It must have been a big shock to you. Yes, it was the first time I ever felt truly different and like I couldn't do anything about it. I couldn't learn my way out of it. And I felt uncomfortable about being different. I, it sort of stripped me of a sense of self that I was raised with, you know. I think that it was, in retrospect, now I can say that, you know, kids are mean in high school. Kids are just mean and I think these this particular group of girls used what they knew would hurt me to hurt me. I was lucky enough to be able to go to a home back in India to my parents that you know filled me up with love and support and you know made me feel cherished that I had the ability to get out of feeling that way you know it didn't permanently indent me. I think it's interesting how many actors, successful actors, have a military family background and are used to having moved around, but also that sense of really? being independent, like Sam Neill, for example, who also came from a military family. But also I was thinking, perhaps it 
turned out to be an advantage a few years later when you came to launch a career in America, that you had kind of, you'd lived the American teenage life. You kind of understood all those things that people otherwise only experienced through television. You'd actually been American in a way, hadn't you? I had, and I think that really helped me understand or dive into a culture that otherwise would have been extremely foreign to me. I mean, I think because my teenage years and my childhood was shaped with the East and the West in a big way, I am an amalgamation of the two. So I can seamlessly, I think, you know, live in both countries and exist in both cultures and understand both cultures. I'm still getting used to the American of it all because, you know, it's just different culturally. I had to get used to like phrases and the American things that Americans say sometimes, like I wouldn't understand it, colloquial phrases, especially on set. I remember when I first started working on Quantico, um, you know, directors would say things and I was like, what, Wait, what does that mean? Can you give me an example of something that, that you didn't get for a while? Like a director would sometimes maybe say, why don't you just throw it away? And like, to me, I had to understand, like, what do you, what is that? What does that mean? Throw it away. Like, you know, I needed to be explained that you yeah. just say the line, like, don't. Um, or there was another one, which was, they were having a conversation. And I remember one of them saying that I don't have a dog in this fight. So I had to really think about what happens when you have a dog in a fight. Oh, you don't have it. Oh, you're not invested. Got it. Got it in this argument, you know, like stuff like that, yeah. which was so hard for me to kind of comprehend initially, but it was fun to figure it out. A lot of people would recognise that, especially when you're working in a whole new culture. Well, you moved back to India with a plan to study aeronautical engineering and, you know, you were going to take your kind of final school exams and university and all that stuff as planned. But at 17, your brother and your mother secretly entered you into the Miss India pageant. I find, I really find it genuinely amazing. And it was your brother's idea and not for a nice reason. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> not for a nice reason. That's really funny. Um, he wanted his room back. He was kicked out of his room when I came back from America and I was a 16, 17 year old girl. And my dad was like, well, she needs her own room. And naturally I didn't argue. And he was kicked out of his room at 10 years old and he wanted his room back. And this was his devious plan to get me out of the house. He told my mom that, you know, send her into this pageant and you know, she'll have to go to Mumbai. <laughs> you know, eventually he got his room back. What can I say? No, it was a smart suggestion. You obviously knew that, you know, you had the looks and, you know, you were the kind of personality who, it was a realistic thing. And your mother went for it. They filled in the form. You entered, you won. And you then entered Miss World and you won in 2000. Now, I have to say, as a, as a kid in the 70s, you know, everyone used to watch Miss World. In more recent years, its status has varied. So I would, I would argue that even when you won, it was regarded in some countries as a bit dated and a bit of a sexist idea, but very much has a big status in many other countries, including India, and clearly seen quite rightly, as a stepping stone to professional success. I'm fascinated in how you and your mother, who was, you know, a doctor, a kind of professional in the, in the Indian military, how you both approached it really practically, but you took it seriously. I'm very conflicted by pageants in general, because I do think that women shouldn't be 
judged basis how they look. I, I don't think so. I think that happens to cattle and women. <laughs> but with the Miss World pageant specifically for me and the Miss India pageant, it was automatically in India a stepping stone into the movies. But for me, that's not why it was exciting. For me, it was exciting because it was a competition. And I was thrown into a competition at, as Miss India in the Miss India pageant for the first time. And I just love competing. And I was like, when I was thrown into it without really my will or without it being my, you know, idea, I was just, I wanted to skip my exams because my exams were coming up and I was failing at that point because I'd just come back from the US to India and American high schools don't prepare you for education anywhere else. So I was failing in school and I had these big exams coming up and I was just like, that gave me an opportunity to not give them. First of all, second of all, I was thrown into competition and I was like, okay, you throw me into competition, I'm going to win. I'm that I'm one of those girls you don't even want to play a board game with. <laughs> and that's what I did. And after I won Miss India, because I guess of being competitive, you know, I really absorbed, I'm like a sponge, I learn, I listen. And I won the Miss India pageant, then the natural thing for a Miss India winner was to go to Miss World. So I applied the same thing. You know, I was like, all right, this is a competition. I'm going to, you know, find my best resources and win this thing. If it was a competition, a, a math competition, I would have done the same thing. If it was a science competition, I would have done the same thing. And then once I won Miss World is when this all, all this happened in the duration of like nine months from January to November. I had no time to think about what was happening. I was just trying to keep my head above water and actually deliver in this in completely different field that I had never imagined. I'd never been in a pageant. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what it was like to wear a sari, heels, a crown, and to be able to speak to heads of states. Like it was all too new. But once it settled into my head and movie offers started coming to me, then it was a conscious decision. I remember sitting with my mom and dad and and it was a natural progression in India at that time that you know, pageant winners were always offered movies. A lot of them ended up, um, you know, trying for movies. A lot of them ended up doing really well as well. So I was curious and I remember speaking to my parents about it, you know, about what they think. My dad said, what do you want to do it? And I was like, well, I'm curious. And he said, I never want you to have a what if in your life. You know, I don't want you to grow up and be like, what if I tried it? Maybe it's like, just do it. You know, you're 18 years old. If you fail or if you're terrible at it, you can always go back to school. And he took away that pressure of this being a new profession. And then I applied the same thing when I signed my first few movies. I was like, all right, how can I learn? This is a competition and I have to win. And I've just treated my career like that. Let's talk about Bollywood because, you know, you were offered multiple film deals. But navigating this new world of Bollywood must have been tricky, even with all that will and that hard work, because it's very macho. You know, you write in your memoir about, you know, male co-stars who could turn up at 4.30 in the afternoon and everyone else has to wait. It's just how it is. How did you manage all that? How did you decide to find your way? That was how it was. It was so normalised. And it is so normalised in a lot of industries, even now, that, you know, that's just how those were the murky waters you navigated. And you knew that. You knew that you would always be secondary to the male actor. You knew that it was the male actor that would call the shots. You knew that it was a patriarchal system. You knew that, 
you know, I just knew all of those things, which is why whenever I had to stand up for myself with, within Bollywood, I did it quietly. I never made a stink about it. I never talked about it because the system was just the way it was. How do you do it quietly? For example, there was this one director who spoke to me in a very derogatory way while I was doing a song with him for a Bollywood movie. And he said something to the effect of, you know, I should be able to see her panties. Otherwise, you know, who's going to come and watch the movie? And he said it to me right in front of my face. And not even looking at me, talking to my stylist. Now, in a moment like this today, it would have been a different situation. But at that time, when I was just starting my career, I was new. I knew that I was told multiple times that girls are dispensable. You know, if you don't take it as it is, somebody else is going to take it as it is. So you just took what you were given. And at that time, what I did was I walked out of the movie without telling the director why I did that. I just said I was uncomfortable. I just said I hadn't comprehended the part well. I didn't. That's what I mean by doing it quietly, is by not taking it on, by not having the courage to be honest and tell this person that you're disrespecting me and I will not stand for it. I didn't have that courage because I was told to work within the system and that's what I did. Do you have that courage now? Yeah, I don't think anybody will say that to me now. <laughs> Has there been a Me Too reckoning in Bollywood in, in the last yes. couple of years? From what I have read, I've been here, I've been working in, here in the last five years. So from the same sources as you, um, I've read that there was a Me Too reckoning in Bollywood as well. I mean, it's happening in every industry. I don't think it's restricted to Hollywood or Bollywood or the movie industry. I think Me Too is a movement of women coming together and saying that we're not going to stand for being treated a certain way anymore. And that has permeated through so many different fields. So I don't think it's fair to just say that it exists in, you know, the um, entertainment business. Yeah. I think that it it's we the entertainment business is more in the eye of the storm because you know we're public but uh, i think it's really crucial to first of all applaud the fact that women have come together to give each other strength in with such uncomfortable situations and uncomfortable topics which should not be uncomfortable to discuss but are because that's how they have been and second of all for the fact that you know we've called out patriarchal behavior entitled behavior everywhere. And that's a big win for our generation. And I hope that the problems that our generation of women have won't be inherited by the next. What's a bit different about the entertainment business, and particularly the screen acting business, is the pressure to be sexy. It's often a part of the plot. It's part of the look. And, you know, it's it's often very overt in Bollywood in a way that I, mean, I have to say, as someone who grew up watching 70s Bollywood films, it's, you know, they've come a long way. And I was thinking, you know, your first lead in the film Fashion, which is about aspiring supermodels, you know, I just wondered... You know, over the, that starting out period of your career, did you worry about, you know, the kind of expectations of beauty, you know, the curves in the right places, the skin's got to be the right shade, all that stuff? 
A hundred percent. I mean, of course. I mean, being in the entertainment business, it's like you said, a, a, a lot to do with your physicality. I did think about that. Of course, I, I was, I was, you know, I wanted to look my best. I wanted to be my best, and and I still don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think, you know, a part of so it's a it's a convoluted thought. So go with me here, first of all. Where there's a demand, there's a supply, right? So all of those people that watch and consume beauty a certain way are being provided beauty presented a certain way because that's our expectations as a society. We as a society have created the fact that beauty looks a certain way. Hence, we are being provided with what beauty should look by everyone, whether it's with beauty brands, advertising, entertainment business, etc. So what we need to do as a people is be more accepting of what our notion of beauty is, of size, color, hair, clothes, everything. And I think the evolution has been so amazing and great that we're on our way where we're seeing various kinds of beauty. But when I was starting out, and this is early 2000s, there was a specific kind of beauty that was beautiful. And of course, I tried to cater to that. Over the years, it's really striking the kind of challenging roles that you've sometimes gone for. And I was thinking of Mary Com, which is based on a real-life champion boxer. She's now a politician. And your physical transformation... She's still boxing, though. She's still boxing as well. I know, it's Mm. amazing. Your physical transformation and the commitment to, to training for that role is really something, and you can see it on screen... I wonder if it was risky taking on that kind of role. There are not that many Bollywood actors, I think, who would do it and who could do it. I'm not like every other Bollywood actor. I never have been. I don't like the comparison. Um, Or I'm not like any other actor. I've paved my own path. Um, I didn't come from the entertainment business, so I don't know what is normal to do or what should be done. I don't believe in um, a standard or um, a mold which already exists. And in my, you know, sort of bulldozing my way through making my own path, I have played multiple different kinds of characters. I've never restricted myself to, you know, just mainstream movies. In fact, I've done very few of the Bollywood song, you know, masala, big movies. Mm. I've done very few, actually, in my 60 movies. Why? That's Um, a really interesting choice, because you could have and made loads of money. Why did you choose to do I mean, I still made loads of money. Don't worry about that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good to hear. (laughs) It took me a while, but I got there. (laughs) I think the Bollywood movies, the masala movies, were very, very dependent on male co-actors. And that was just not something that I always was okay with. You know, I, I, it, it, a lot depended on not just male co-actors, but male uh, co-actors, male directors. And I think a lot of that depended on whether that you were in their good books or not. And I'm not someone who likes pandering. So I was just like, you know what? If you think I'm great for this part, you come to me. If you don't, I'll do something else. And yeah, that's just, I just never pandered. I found work where I could find work. I worked with amazing filmmakers. I wanted to build my own self and not somebody else's career. So I did smaller movies with powerful parts. And that's what I built. My career was very self-made because of that. And you seem to approach everything like a physical challenge. So I'm going to ask about dancing because, you know, you may not have just done 
just the big masala Bollywood films, but you can dance and it is a big part of some of those films. Physically demanding, such as your famous dance in Ram Chahilila. How quickly were you able to come up to speed as a dancer? Because you did need to learn, didn't you? Yeah, I, I wasn't really a dancer. I didn't know very much about dancing. When my mother is a Vishara in Kathak, which means she graduated in a classical Indian form of dancing called Kathak, which is very feet heavy, but extremely expressive and graceful. So when I became an actor, I was thrown off set one day because, you know, I just couldn't get this one simple shot. And I started training with Pandit Viru Krishnan, who um, was, God rest his soul, a Kathak marvel in Mumbai. And I started, I went to work with him and started training with him. I, did, I worked with him for about a year and a half, I learned from him. And uh, it changed me. Just learning a dance form helped me understand rhythm and helped me find my feet and my hands. And now I can dance any sort of dance form, but it really started with with Kathak and understanding just rhythm within your body and grace and movement. Singing is another huge part of Bollywood films. And you are associated with some really big hit songs, such as Lal Dupatta, which is a kind of big staple song of Indian weddings and Mendis. And of course, the song Desi Girl from the film Dostana, which has become this huge party anthem. And I think, I mean, it is a song that you're proudly, it's like, you're, it is your anthem in a way, isn't it? I, I, it was even so, was it at your wedding celebrations? I wonder how you feel about that song, what it means to you. Um, I love Desi Girl, the song. It kind of has become my nickname, you know, like, I am Desi girl. <laughs> and we should say Desi, you know, it's a word for, you know, someone of Indian heritage, wherever you may be in the world, you know, your heart is is in India. Yeah, Desi means of Indian descent. And the song is called Desi Girl. Who's the hottest girl in the world? Desi girl. Looking back at the impact of Miss World, that a lot of things kind of fell into place and you you went with the opportunities that came. So the acting was a logical step. The singing career that then came. And and I when you moved first to America in the early 2000s and focused on a singing career, you had you know, a string of singles, in, including in collaboration with people like Will I Am. I wonder, looking back, did you know that's what you wanted to be? Or to some extent, were you making career moves as you went along? I've never known what I want to be. I still don't know what I want to be. And I don't think I ever want to find out what I want to be because that's just not how I roll. The way I have always conducted my career choices has been recognizing an opportunity, creating an opportunity, and then running with it. When you say things happened, I don't think they just happened. You know, the opportunity came my way, even when we think about like the Miss India thing with my brother putting in my name in this pageant, but there was a very big world in which I, I could have said, I've not done this. I don't know how to do this. Oh my gosh, gone there, frozen on stage, not known how to model or, but I have not, my nature is I lean into challenges. I don't, I don't, I'm not averse to them. I don't get scared of them. I learn. If you throw me into a challenge, I will quickly learn, quickly adapt and quickly excel any challenge. You give me a house to clean, I will clean it in the most excellent way possible. I, my pursuit is always excellence. So I think I just apply that 
every single day of my life in everything that I want to achieve. I am an overachiever. I do like to be, you know, juggling multiple things at the same time. I'm very detail oriented. I am very hands-on with every single thing I do. So even with my music, you know, I treated it the same way. I was thrown into a new environment because somebody came to me with an idea, my my now manager Angela, that would you like to do music? And and other people have had the opportunities before to be able to do it too. But I think the difference with with who I am is I dive in really deep and really quickly like I'm not afraid to I don't need to dip my toes I just dive in But you know what sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't and my music is something that didn't live up to my own creative standards and i decided to leave it behind unfinished yeah. and move on to something else with the acting you know you were the first south asian actor to be cast in a leading role in a us network series in quantico as um, an fbi agent but it was striking that that transition from bollywood to hollywood it was it was tricky and and i was fascinated by the time you spent you know just sort of establishing yourself getting known getting to the right people, the right events. Tell me a bit about that transition, how hard it was. Well, I mean, it's hard for anyone to make it into Hollywood or Bollywood or a new industry. I think anyone who's coming in new would have to do all the things that I did, which is I'm I'm just not entitled. I don't expect that because I'm a big star in India where I have, you know, had a prolific career worked with in 50 movies that I expect that kind of treatment in a completely new country too I'm I'm not that person especially when I know I'm starting in a new industry altogether I had to build in India as well I you know started with smaller roles I started with supporting parts I proved myself over time and that's exactly what you have to do in any business and I did that in America as well while I was doing my music I was meeting people I was going to the right places I was establishing who I was where I came from and what I was seeking I introduced myself to you know agents directors writers magazines medias I went without knowing anyone to you know big parties and introduced myself to people because that's the only way to do it no one's going to carry your burdens for you except yourself and it was my choice right to come into a new business i can't be expecting to sit down in my home and waiting for the phone to ring i've just not been that person the the work culture in a uh, us tv seems to have struck you as quite different and and i was fascinated to read that you found the concept of a whole weekend off when you began working on quantico completely novel and bizarre <laughs> it was bananas for me to think about every week having two days off it was such a waste of time in my head i was like what do you mean what do we do for two days off like i did not have a concept of taking time for myself for a very long time i i was like a hamster you know the thing a lot of people don't understand i think about my job like as an actor is it's not consistent at all right we don't have any stability like you don't it's not like a 9 to 5 where you know where your check is coming from for the next month or you know where you're going to be or what office you go to i don't know anything it's all project to project if i don't if i don't get another movie i don't have a job i can't pay my bills 
so it's like you've got to keep hustling and i didn't have anyone to you know make movies for me or i i had to kind of do it myself and so i never spent any time on myself i was only spending time building my career and getting to a place where i felt like i, I had some form of stability or i was you know undeniable to a certain extent that i would still get work and that's what i had to do in the us as well i think you know just make sure that i keep getting work but i was forced to take a weekend because that's the culture yeah and i would say it's also a very you know indian thing as well that this you know you hustle you work you you're always thinking about maximizing what you could be doing i want to ask a bit about the white tiger you exec produced as well as starred in this um very recent hit netflix film based on the man booker prize winning novel i was watching it today it's terrific it's dealing with a really grim subject about modern India, you know, caste, wealth divisions of Indian society. And your role, I mean, you know, you're great at it, but it's not a flattering role. I'm fascinated by why you wanted to back this film as well as be in it. Well, first of all, I've played a lot of non-flattering roles and I never judge my characters. If I started judging my characters, I'll only be playing pristine, pure, you know amazing people that sounds like propaganda to me no one's like that what is it that you want to do i want to serve you and ashok sir no no you can't possibly believe that my master is a good man a good man he's a rich man so first of all that i love shades of humanity i love being able to showcase different shades of humanity and i think it's a very relevant story not just because it's based in modern india but during covid we've seen such a the disparities of the world you know come out to the fore people who have and the people who don't have we've seen that disparity happen in such a big way that i think it was such a great time to tell a story because it has the universality of the the subject matter it is about someone being ambitious and trying to get out of the circumstances that they are born into and wanting to be better and wanting to be more than what your birthright dictates you know and it's an ambitious story and to me it is more of the class divide that exists all around the world and and reflected through an indian story and i was very proud to be a part of something which was it's so provocative and at the same time was great storytelling because it was sarcastic it was funny it was thrilling it was entertaining and as a producer that's what you look for you know you want to i want to be part of compelling storytelling and even as the book i mean arvin's so genius at creating these amazing worlds and ramin really is very good at telling the stories of people who want to just be better you know people who want to be better their circumstances of the This underdog is the director. yeah, yeah the, the director ramin barani yeah. um so it was just a magical project to be a part of and i just wanted to you know be at the helm of telling an indian story in a mainstream way because usually indian stories always get relegated in hollywood to being a genre movie or an independent movie but i wanted to push this to a place where it would have eyeballs everywhere and it was considered mainstream because that's really my fight and my quest is to be able to see people like you and me in mainstream entertainment you know in 
like Quantico for me was that, you know, my, my ethnicity didn't define the storytelling, which is what happens to most actors of Indian descent, mm-hmm. is we get put into roles and then the storytelling has to def- explain your ethnicity, which is absurd to me. My name is Alex Parrish. Protecting our country had always been my dream. But my life took a very drastic turn. It all started on my way to the FBI Academy, Quantico. They say it's the toughest boot camp, grad school, all rolled into one. Now, let's see if you can survive. So I'm, I'm very excited about the fact that, you know, The White Tiger was a number one movie in so many countries around yeah. the world that it just, to me, was historical. I was so emotional about it. I wanted to ask about social media. So you have this multi-million following and you've experienced its downside. So, you know, when Quantico began, you know, you write in your memoir about the shock of just getting this racist abuse just coming at you because you were starring in it. But equally, you know, you can get grief over what you tweet or criticism. And I think there's something that a lot of people of Indian and Pakistani heritage get is that you can get a lot of grief from, you know, people of your own heritage about something as simple as what you were wearing in a photo or something that you said. And I just wonder what you make of it and how you deal with it. The good is amazing because I'm a big fan of social media. I like social media because I don't have a medium in the middle when I talk to people who are interested in me. It's directly from me to people who are interested in me. So I love that aspect of it. And the second thing, what I don't like about it, and I'm I'm actually glad you asked this question, is it's so sad. It, it hurts so much when your own community hates on you. I'm one of the very few people from India or even of Indian descent, who's working in an industry that does not look like us, you know? And we can count us on like 10 fingers, Mindy, Aziz, Riz, Kumail, like there's a bunch of us. And I just wish our, in fact, that's what I wish. I wish the community would come together and actually be extremely supportive and excessively supportive and, you know, be like, yeah, this is a win for all of us, if it's a win for us, you know, or me. It's painful, it's, it's hurtful, but I moved beyond it a while ago. I, I made peace with the negativity and the trolling because, I mean, first of all, everyone gets it and it happens to anyone and everyone on social media. I just get it in multitudes because of the large numbers of followers, but at the same time, I'm also a public person. So it catapults into a lot, some, being much more than it probably should. I wonder if it's also being a woman. I mean, I know a lot of your South Asian fans are very protective of you. Definitely. um, As a result. But, you know, you'll know, it feels like there's a bit of a culture war raging. I mean, there's one raging all over the world. But to some extent, it seems to be a bit of a one about what it is to be a good Indian now. And some Bollywood actors have found themselves targeted by politicians. Just how do you regard what's going on? Do you have to think more carefully about because you are of Indian heritage, how you're going to be treated or potentially misinterpreted. Absolutely. I don't trust the interpretation of the media or of anyone for that matter, which is why I like social, because I can be very, very clear about what I'm saying. But um, yes, I think I'm a lot more aware and careful than I used to be before because of the exact thing. Has it got worse, do you think? Is there something getting worse? 
I don't know if it's gotten worse or not, but I've just separated myself from it. I just enjoy social for the good. That's all. Like I'll have fun on it and I use it just for that and to be social, which is what I think social media is supposed to do. Now, your wedding to the American singer and actor Nick Jonas was, I think it's fair to say, a significant moment of East-West celebrity fusion. And I can remember seeing it kind of trend on Twitter when it happened. I wonder, has it changed, does it change how you're perceived by Americans? Me getting married? Yeah. Because of who you got married to? I don't know, because I think that my husband and I were just, just two normal people who met under very normal circumstances and got married in a very extravagant way. But I don't think about the ramifications of that on my on my public life or on his public life. Just as someone who's aware of, like you were giving all these examples of how much ignorance there is, actually just having the big Indian wedding got seen globally. And there must have been millions of Americans who suddenly saw for the first time and got an inkling of what, you know, Hindu culture is like. I mean, in that completely benign sense, did you have a sense of this is potentially going to change some people's prejudices when we got married and seeing you know my indian lehenga on the cover of american magazines or you know when i wear saris you know my when i play holi or when i talk about my indian side which i like to talk about before anything you know i'm i'm really someone who likes to educate about india because i love it and i think you know the cross-pollination of it is what's really interesting to me, that through um, my husband and I, maybe the cultural exchange becomes a lot more normalized, that, you know, yeah. and, and an understanding of different cultures becomes more of a mainstream understanding. So that part is really cool, I think. Your memoir, you wrote with such affection about your wedding, and you just said yourself, you know, it was quite wild and extravagant. You're also a UNICEF ambassador, and, you know, you then mentioned visiting slums. And... That contrast, I know it's it's a contrast that many people who have high profiles live with, but it, it could be read as a, a somewhat lack of awareness about the privilege you have. And I don't know if you've read back those pages recently. Do you ever worry about that, you know, that kind of contrast between the life you live and the causes that you might espouse? Yes, I do. But that by that argument... You mean that anybody who has worked hard to get where they have should not um, be socially aware or should not be socially conscious? I think it's no, it's it's not. I think it's more that um, maybe hypocritically some of them would choose not to write about the glamorous but side. But that's and hypocritical. You're very honest about it. I'm an honest person. I've worked very, very hard for everything I have and I've spent a lot of time getting it. So I think... It's um, disrespectful, actually, when it is considered that I, I actually spend a lot of time um, giving back and it's a huge part of my life. In fact, I think that should be an example for people. Um, even when I didn't have a lot, I always gave back. That consistency is more important. I don't think I'm someone who would hide what I have just because it makes me look better in somebody else's optics. I'm not apologetic for where I am because it's self-made and I haven't inherited this. This is mine. And at the same time, I choose to share that with the world. And I don't know how many more, how many other people choose to do that. Yeah. No, thank you so much for that answer. And I'm really glad uh, that, that you, you, you t- chose to answer that way. I have one question left, which is you were talking about, you know, using your voice and finding it. And in your 
memoir, Unfinished, you've chosen to write frankly about some controversies in your life. And you've expressed regrets as well. Um, And some of these are on a list of things that are off limits for this interview. So tell me about why you felt you did need to raise your voice about these issues in the book, but you don't feel you want to do them in interviews. Because clearly you've thought through that decision. Yes, I have, which is why I discussed it in the book. And I don't want to discuss it in a conversation because I don't trust the interpretation of conversations. Hence, it's in my words in my book. Thank you. No, that's what I thought you would say. Um, And I really appreciate you taking on all the questions. Priyanka Chopra Jonas, thank you so much for coming on How I Found My Voice. And I am genuinely looking forward to seeing what you do next. Thank you so much. So am I. This podcast was made by Intelligence Squared. The producer was Farah Jassat. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe. Tell your friends and your family to check it out. And we'd really appreciate it if you could also take a very quick moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. This helps us to raise the profile of the podcast and it helps other people to find the show. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.